I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, this is Tiffany Clark, and welcome to the 93rd episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed, the podcast where I pick a famous day from history and then tell you what else was being reported in newspapers on the exact same day. Sometimes the stories are very random and sometimes they're shocking, but they're always fun. Today I have an extra fun famous date, except this famous date doesn't follow the rules of most of my other episodes. Usually the famous date I pick is one that made big headlines all over the country and world, with every newspaper trying to be the first to spread the news of the event. With other episodes, if it wasn't initially a big event, it was something that impacted history eventually. Today's event doesn't really fit into either of those categories. And I thought about doing it as a mini-episode, but since it's November, and almost Thanksgiving, and this event happened on Thanksgiving Day many years ago, I decided to go for it. Are you curious yet? Today's famous date is November 29th, 1895, and I'm taking this headline from the Chicago Tribune. It says, Durier Motorcycle Wins the Race. Friends, this headline was the first to announce the winner of the first ever race by gas-powered vehicles. Yes, I know, it's a very random event, but it, trust me, it's fun. Now, I'm going to point out right away that the motorcycle spoken of in the headlines is spelled M-O-T-O-C-Y-C-L-E. It might sound like I'm pronouncing it weird, but there really isn't an R in it. Car racing is a big business in the United States and other countries around the world. Some people prefer to watch Formula One racing, some prefer NASCAR, some prefer IndyCar. Other people might not be that enthused about watching car racing and would rather drag race in the streets. There are many different ways to race, but it all had to start somewhere, right? Well, back in July of 1895, the Chicago Times-Herald announced that they were going to host a race on November 2nd of that year. There would be monetary prizes, and it would beef up the auto industry that was barely getting started at this point. I mean, it had only been two years since the first automobiles had been produced in this country. One source pointed out that the reason the race was called a motorcycle race was because the industry was so new, the term automobile wasn't even widely used at that point. The newspaper had to come up with something to call it. After the paper made their announcement, 89 different vehicles were registered and entered into the race. But when the day of the race got closer, and only a handful of cars were ready, the race got delayed. People had hopes and dreams of building vehicles for the race, but they just couldn't come up with a good enough product in time. Then the race got delayed until November 28th, Thanksgiving Day, because of another problem. Two different cars were stopped by police on their way into the city because they didn't have permission to drive cars on the streets. The police made them get horses and have their vehicles pulled into town. The newspaper then had to make sure that the city passed a special ordinance allowing the gas-powered vehicles on city streets. So the day of the race finally arrived, and according to our article, of the original 89 cars registered, just seven showed up that day. The Durier, which went on to win the race, three Benz cars, one sponsored by Macy's in New York, and two electrics whose batteries died almost immediately after the race began. 
The weather wasn't in their favor, and the roads were covered in snow and slush. And keep in mind that the roads weren't very good back then, even if they weren't covered in snow and slush. Navigation became very difficult. The race was supposed to run from Chicago to Waukegan, a distance of just under 100 miles. But because of all the problems, they decided to have it go from Chicago to Evanston, a distance of about 55 miles. I'm going to read you the description of the race directly from the newspaper because it made me laugh. It says, Between 9 and 10 o'clock yesterday morning, while crowds of enthusiasts were hastening to the football games, seven motorcycles plowed out of Jackson Park for a 55-mile race through the snow and slush that lay between the starting point and Evanston. At 9 o'clock last night, but two of the horseless vehicles had crossed the finish line. The other five were lost, wandering aimlessly about the streets of Chicago or lying wrecked in some gutter along the way. The Duryea machine, which in the last race was ditched several miles from anywhere, finished first. The Benz Mueller craft came in an hour and a half later. Its pilot, however, claims the trophy on the grounds the Duryea machine was pushed up the hill to the finish. This is denied by the occupants of the Duryea motorcycle, and there will be a contest. Spoiler alert, the Duryea vehicle got to keep the title. It took them 10 hours and 17 minutes to finish the 55-mile race. That's a really long time. At one point, the Duryea car accidentally went into a ditch and had to be pulled out before they could get going again. They weren't the only car that happened to them. The very last part of the article made me laugh. It says, three of the motorcycles reached Evanson after 2 o'clock a.m. and were headed homeward. Meanwhile, the judges had become disgusted and quit, and no one witnessed the finish but two reporters. As you can tell, the race was definitely unique. The cars didn't even start at the same time. It was basically just go when you can get your vehicle started and moving. The car that was sponsored by Macy's of New York crashed into a streetcar on the way to Evanston. And then they crashed into a sleigh. And then on the return trip, they crashed into a hack. Is anyone besides me picturing this race in black and white with the three stooges operating the vehicles? It really would have made for a good slapstick comedy. Anyway, the Duryeas, Frank and Charles, won $2,000 and a whole lot of publicity, which ended up helping them out with their business. Now, typically I would end the famous date story here. But before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit about Frank and Charles Durier, because their names are rarely brought up these days. But they really were important figures back when the auto industry was just getting started. The brothers were both born and raised in Illinois in the 1860s, and they had a passion for building bicycles. Penny farthings, that is. You know, the kind with the big wheel in front and a small wheel in back? Charles went on to work with bicycles both in St. Louis and in Washington, D.C., and while living in D.C., he would study all of the patents coming in. He realized how important patents were and started getting some of his own in his name. He ended up with 61, and his brother Frank ended up with 30. After the brothers started their own bicycle manufacturing company, they saw a gas-powered engine made by Carl Benz at the Ohio State Fair, and they became fascinated with it and the possibilities it created. Charles would come up with the ideas, and Frank would build them, and for the first attempt at a horseless carriage, they got a small woman's buggy and attached an engine to it. They started it up, and the vehicle began to move. But it was missing something very important. Brakes. 
They had to grab hold of it and hold it back until the engine could be shut off so it wouldn't crash through the wall of their building. On September 13, 1893, they were able to take it outside and drove it for 600 feet before it broke down. They tweaked it, and a few days later were able to drive it a few miles at a time. After the brothers won that first gas-powered vehicle race, they started the first American car company in the United States. Yep, Ford wasn't the first company like some people think. It was called Durier Motor Vehicles, and they were originally based out of Massachusetts. One of their first vehicles was bought by Barnum and Bailey Circus, and that vehicle would lead the circus parades in all the towns they stopped at. The Durier Company didn't last very long, but it was an important part of history for more than one reason. I found a great video where a man made a replica of the first Durier vehicle, and it shows you how it worked. It's really interesting to watch. I'll post a link to that video in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group, and you can check it out there. And now that I've talked longer than I ever have about today's main event, let's open up some more newspapers from November 29th, 1895, and see what else was happening. For my first additional history story of the day, I found an article announcing the death of Alexander Dumas. He was the author of books like The Count of Monte Cristo and The Man in the Iron Mask and The Three Musketeers. He led a fascinating life, and I was excited to tell that story to you. But then as I read the article more closely, I realized it was actually Alexander Dumas Jr. that had died. He was an interesting character too, but I'm not going to share his story. Instead, I just wanted to mention it for those who are literature fans and wanted to know how the event added to the timeline in their head. Instead, I'm going to tell you a shocking story that I found in the Arapahoe Pioneer out of Arapahoe, Nebraska. This headline says, Four Heads Cut Open. When I read the headline, I thought for sure it would be an article about a mining incident, or a train wreck, or falling debris or some other type of accident that would have caused four people to have their heads cut open at the same time. But it was much more disturbing than any of those things. This event took place in Dunlap, Kansas, the week before our article was printed. Nowadays, Dunlap is a very small community with fewer than 30 people living there. But the 1890s, when our article takes place, was the heyday for the village. Back then, they had just over 400 people. Yeah, it was still very small. On the day of the incident, the school board was meeting to discuss something that had happened previously. A 14-year-old girl named Dora Ray said that her school teacher, David Henderson, had attacked her. Twice. The school board brought in a lawyer, the matter was discussed, and according to the article, Henderson was exonerated. But Samuel Ray, Dora's father, was not happy about the outcome in any way. He insisted that Henderson needed to be taken to trial. Mr. Ray and Mr. Henderson then got into a fight at the school board meeting. Somehow, Henderson got hold of a hatchet during the fight, because, you know, it was normal to carry a hatchet to a school board meeting in 1895, and he began swinging the weapon around. He made contact with Samuel Ray and split his head open. When he realized what he'd done, Henderson ran for the door, still holding the hatchet. Mrs. Ray, Samuel's wife, jumped into the aisle to try to stop him from escaping, so he attacked her with the hatchet too. 
Mrs. McFall, who was said to be a sister to Dora, was also hit in the head during the chaos. But David Henderson wasn't done yet. The only person between him and freedom was Thomas Starkey. But Henderson had something Starkey didn't. The hatchet. With one more swing, a fourth head was cut open, and David Henderson was out the door and running from the building. At the time of the article's printing, he still hadn't been caught, despite a massive manhunt of all available bodies. The town of Dunlap even sent telegrams to all area towns telling them what had happened and to be on the lookout, but he still couldn't be found. The article ended with a sentence, None of the victims are as yet dead. So I guess that's at least one good part of the article. I wanted to know more, as in, was David Henderson ever apprehended, and did anyone die? So I looked in more newspapers from the time. Thankfully, I was able to find an answer to part of that story. After being on the run for about three days, David Henderson was captured at four o'clock in the afternoon and placed in the county jail in Emporia, Kansas, until he could be taken back to the jail in Dunlap. When asked why he did what he did, Henderson said that he was acting in self-defense, since the whole crowd of people was closing in on him and, quote, clamoring for his life. So he had to cut his way out. At the time the second article was printed, all four hatchet victims were still alive, but it was written that Mrs. Ray and Thomas Starkey were in their beds, lying at the point of death, and that there was little hope for their recovery. The article said that all was quiet in Dunlap, and the police didn't expect any trouble. But the rumors around town were saying that if one of the victims died from their injury, there was going to be a lynching. I looked for more updates, including what happened when David Henderson went to trial, or whether anyone died, but I couldn't find any updates. Which leads me to believe that everyone survived the ordeal. Newspapers didn't want to print the boring and mundane. They wanted these sensational shocking stories. I think this is definitely a case of no news is good news. For my second additional history story, I have another bizarre story for you. And again, this might be another case of people wanting something to be worse than it actually was. I found the article in the Record of the Times out of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. The headline says, A Sensational Case. Yeah, the headline doesn't really give anything away, does it? This story takes place in Tioga, Pennsylvania. Back then, the town had around 600 residents. Nowadays, it's not much higher than that. They might have been a small town, but in November of 1895, there was something bringing an awful lot of attention to their little town. Mrs. Charlotte Howell was on trial, accused of murdering Libby Knapp. The article pointed out that the evidence presented, or that was going to be presented in the case, was all circumstantial. And I would have to agree. To quote the article, it says, The case is one of the strangest in the criminal annals of Pennsylvania. Charlotte came from a prominent family in New York. Her maiden name was Dutton, and both of her brothers were said to be among the wealthiest merchants in the metropolis. But, as sometimes happens, Charlotte was estranged from her well-known, well-off family. They didn't like her choice in spouse, a man named Chauncey Howell. He was a teamster. The Howell family and the Knapp family were neighbors in Tioga, and Charlotte Howell was good friends with 19-year-old Libby Knapp, who hadn't yet married. 
but Libby did have a love affair. Now, I'm not sure if the term love affair meant the same thing back then as it does now. It might have just meant that she was seeing someone. Either way, the love affair ended, and Libby started to receive letters. Unpleasant letters. These letters would be found tied to the doorknob of her home, and they were signed by a young man who also lived in Tioga. The article didn't make it clear if he was the one Libby had been seeing or not, but I assume it was. Anyway, according to the court, the letters were usually left early in the morning, and more than once, Charlotte was the one who allegedly found the letters on her friend's door. In May of 1895, Libby suddenly became sick, and Charlotte decided to have Libby come stay at her house so she could help take care of her. Remember, the women were close friends. Charlotte watched over Libby, but on May 17th, Libby suddenly passed away from whatever it was that was making her sick. People were shocked, and an investigation into Libby's death was started, and the investigators found evidence that Libby had been poisoned to death. The article didn't say what kind of evidence they had that Libby was poisoned, and I can't imagine that in 1895 there was a lot of testing done on bodies, but maybe I'm wrong. The investigators looked into the matter, determined that Charlotte must have been jealous of Libby, and began writing letters and pretending they were from someone else. The letters were threatening in nature, and then Charlotte had Libby come and live with her so she could kill her with rat poison. It all seemed very, well, circumstantial, and I can't help but wonder if Charlotte was shocked by the accusations. I mean, the article doesn't even mention whether or not the young man who was supposedly writing the letters was even questioned. A newspaper article I found later in the trial did list the young man's name. It was William Reitmeyer and during the trial, the defense team tried to blame the poisoning on him. It also came out during the trial that some of the threatening letters were found by Chauncey, Charlotte's husband, while she was in bed, so there was no way she could have placed them there. When I first read about the threatening letters, I assumed there were just a few, but 48 different letters were shown as evidence during the trial. Since some of the letters were written on the back of letters Libby had already received, the prosecution insisted Charlotte must have been the one writing them since she had access to Libby's house. The second article also cleared up how they came to believe that Libby had been poisoned. Apparently, when she died, they harvested some of her organs and sent them to a doctor in Philadelphia for analysis. In order to keep the specimens viable, they needed to be collected and transported correctly. And according to the doctor in Philly, those guidelines hadn't been followed so the results weren't as accurate as he'd like them to be. Also during the trial, a witness stated that William Reitmeyer, the discarded lover, had once made a statement to him that if he couldn't have Libby Knapp, no other fellow would have her either. During the trial, Charlotte testified that one of the detectives pursuing the theory that she had murdered Libby made inappropriate propositions to her. She also claimed that he offered to pay her money if she confessed, and he'd make sure she was acquitted. The detective was arrested, but of course denied everything and said she was making it all up. I can't help but wonder if he really did any of those things, or if it was Charlotte's way of showing him that evidence needs to be solid, and you can't just assume things since everything against her was circumstantial. The trial lasted for almost three weeks, but on December 14, 1895, the Philadelphia Inquirer printed this headline, Charlotte Howell is a free woman. The jury found her innocent, and she was acquitted. 
When the verdict was announced, the courtroom erupted in applause, and her family came to greet her. That included her brothers, who she had been estranged from. Maybe being accused of murder can bring a family closer together. Interestingly enough, the article announcing Charlotte's acquittal ended by saying that there was no question that Libby was murdered. They just didn't know who did it. Now, I only gave you the information about this story from a few articles I read in the newspapers. They seemed to lean in favor of Charlotte being innocent. But there were people who claimed they saw Charlotte with the letters, and that she destroyed evidence, and that she borrowed rat poison from them right before Libby died. Other people said they thought Charlotte's husband Chauncey was jealous of Libby, so he killed her. This is one case that will most likely always be unsolved. My last additional history story of the day comes from the Marysville Evening Democrat out of Marysville, California. This headline simply says, Lame Excuse. And it's the story of Bandit Brady. Never heard of him? Well, neither had I before I read this article, but I can say with confidence that Bandit Brady wasn't a very good guy. The article says that the lawyers for Bandit Brady had come to the jail in Yuba County, the place where he was being held, to make sure that he was secure. His own lawyers feared that he would escape, and they asked that a special watchman be placed near Brady at all times, whether day or night, to prevent him from escaping. The sheriff thought it was commendable of his lawyers and obeyed their request. But despite the watchman being there, Brady still tried to make an escape. He managed to saw through the bars of his cell without anyone noticing. He would have managed to escape if it weren't for the fact that he miscalculated the space he needed and couldn't get his hips through the opening he created in the bars before someone finally saw what he was doing. Later, when Bandit Brady was being transferred to Folsom Prison, Sheriff Bogard was terrified that a mistake would be made and Brady would get free. He tried to think of every possible scenario, including some of Brady's friends stealing him back during the surprise attack. The sheriff said he felt huge relief when he saw Brady in striped prison clothing locked behind bars in Folsom. So who was Bandit Brady, and why was Sheriff Bogard so concerned about this one prisoner? Well. It turns out that Bandit Brady killed Sheriff Bogard's brother. One day, the year before, Brady and a friend stopped a railroad worker who was driving a hand tricycle down the track. They stole all of his money, tied him up, and then took some dynamite and his big red lantern. The men knew that the train would soon be coming down the track, and when it did, they set off the dynamite and began to frantically wave the lantern. The train conductor had no choice but to stop the train. Bandit Brady and his partner then held up the train at gunpoint and led the train's engineer and fireman back to the third car of the train. That was the Wells Fargo Express car. The fireman was then instructed to unhook the Wells Fargo car from the others, and the fireman and engineer were led back to the locomotive where they were told to pull those three cars forward about three miles, leaving the rest of the train behind. Bandit Brady and his partner kept their guns on the men the entire time. When they stopped, once again, the engineer and fireman were led back to the express car. This time, Brady ordered the men to tell the express car messenger inside that if he didn't open the door, they'd kill the engineer. The messenger let them in, and Bandit Brady and his partner had the men carry $53,000 in cash 
back to the locomotive. In today's money, that would be about $1.7 million. Again, the fireman was ordered to unhook the train cars from the locomotive, and the bandits made off with the locomotive and the cash, leaving the engineer and the fireman behind in the middle of nowhere. But these bandits weren't done yet. After traveling for a couple of miles, they took their money, reversed the engine so it was moving backward down the tracks, and then they jumped from the train. Luckily for those on the cars that had already been left behind, when the locomotive came barreling back down the track again, it was running out of steam and didn't do too much damage when it crashed into the cars. The robbers had bailed from the train a couple of miles away from Sacramento, and because the money was so heavy, detectives figured there was no way they would have been able to carry it and must have cashed it somewhere. They did a search, but came up empty-handed. Fast forward to March of 1895, and the two bandits struck again. Their faces were covered with masks, but the way they operated was almost identical to the train robbery from the year before. Except that second time, things didn't go quite as smoothly for the men. They had ordered the messenger to open the Wells Fargo car, and he obeyed, except he didn't know the combination to the safe. And since the robbers didn't have anything to blow it open, they instead took a sack and began passing it from passenger to passenger, making them put all of their valuables inside. Meanwhile, one of the train's porters saw what was happening and knew that Sheriff J.J. Bogard was on the train, the brother of the sheriff we talked about earlier, and that he was asleep in one of the sleeper cars. The porter woke him up, and the sheriff quickly dressed and hurried to the scene of the crime. The sheriff immediately opened fire on the bandits, shooting Brady's partner first. He dropped to the ground, dead. Then Brady opened fire on the sheriff, and the sheriff was struck by a bullet and killed. The fireman, who was still standing there holding the loot bag for bandit Brady, was killed. Brady, not sure what to do, backed out of the car and escaped into the night, leaving the loot behind, and the train rushed on into Marysville to get help for the wounded and dead. The men working on the case were able to track down a pair of bicycles hidden near where the train stopped, and it was believed that they had been rented by the two bandits so that they'd have a way to escape. They asked a company that rented out bikes and showed them a picture of the now-dead bandit, and sure enough, the company was able to identify him. Brady was still on the run, but not for long. The authorities closed in on him and were able to arrest him before he could escape again. He confessed to both of the train robberies, and to killing a man in a bar. Bandit Brady was convicted of the crimes and sentenced to life in prison. And as you know from earlier, the sheriff was very glad when his brother's killer was safely behind the prison walls. So, remember how the money from the first train robbery was missing? Well, it turned out that a homeless man in the area had been sleeping near the tracks that night, saw an area of the ground that had recently been disturbed, and started digging. He found the money and started spending it like crazy. That raised eyebrows since people knew he didn't usually have much money, and the truth of the matter was soon figured out. He ended up serving three years in Fulton Prison. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Bennington Banner out of Bennington, Vermont. This ad is for a dress-cutting school. It says, now is the time to insure yourself against high prices, against ill-fitting garments, 
and prepare yourself to save money at home or earn money in business. If you learn this art with us, you are insured of a fit and style to your gowns that only the expert can give, and you are insured of a good living anywhere. The ad then continues on, telling potential attendees what all they would be learning at the dress cutting school and how to get in contact with the school. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something you've never known before. I know I learned a lot and had a lot of fun in the process. Join me next Monday for another all-new episode. This time we'll jump forward a couple of decades to another event that is both nostalgic and historical. Talk to you later.